We've been working our way through the book of 2 Timothy this spring here, or winter, whatever you want to call this time period, and um, it feels a lot more like winter outside, right, than spring right now. Uh, but we've been working through the book of 2 Timothy uh, on this series called Fan the Flame, and thinking about what does it look like uh, to fan the flame of our faith and our gifting and our calling and our service to the Lord, and how Paul is charging Timothy to do that and how we can take that charge as well this morning. And so um, today we're going to just press into that even further as we're going to look at uh, this phrase that Paul uses to Timothy here. He talks about being useful to the master. So I want to talk about that this morning, useful to the master. And as I was thinking on that, I think, you know, everyone wants to feel useful, right? Like that's just, there's just kind of something inside of us as humans, like we want to feel useful. Maybe, you know, you want to be useful at your job so you can, you know, get that raise that you've been hoping for, or maybe just, you know, not get fired, or at least something, or like you want to be useful so you can still have a job. Uh, maybe, you know, you want to be useful um, on your team so that, you know, you help them get the win, so you're not sitting on the bench, like you're actually, it's useful to the group. Um, I know as parents, we want to feel useful to our children, even as they get older and think that they don't need us anymore, and they don't want to listen to us old people anymore. Like that. But we want, to, we want to be able to speak into their lives, right, and be useful in some way. Um, and so I think this is just kind of embedded in us as humans, but I was thinking about it too. Um, this even seems to play out um, when we're dating, right, or trying to find a mate. Like maybe we wouldn't like say this out loud, but like when you're looking for that special someone, you're looking for someone who's going to be kind of useful to you, right, like in your future marriage. And you want to be useful to them as well. And, and I know like when I was first thinking about, you know, who uh, would be a good um, wife and mate for me, I was looking, I kind of had two major criteria that like we, they've got to be able to, to be useful in these two ways if, if this is going to work. And one was like, I need someone who can come alongside me and serve in ministry and serve the Lord and like be useful to the kingdom. We can do this together as a partnership. And the second thing was um, she had to be able to cook because um, I like to eat. And so, um, so Courtney, thankfully, not only was she beautiful and funny and we had a great friendship, but she also checked both of those boxes, right? And so so it was a good match uh, for me. I don't know what in the world she found useful in me at that time, but evidently there was something. And um, thankfully, after 18 years now of marriage, we've been able to find ways to be useful to one another and to serve one another and to love one another and to give ourselves to the benefit of the relationship and to one another. Amen? And as much as that's great, and as much as we love to be useful to other people, as a follower of Christ, more than anything, I want to be useful to the master. Right? More than any other job or place or organization or person, I want my worth, I want my value, I want my life to count as something that is useful to Jesus Christ who has saved me. And I hope that you have that desire as well. I know Paul had that and he wants us all to have that desire and to push for that and to, to pursue that. And he's going to tell us here specifically how we can prepare ourselves to be useful to the master, Jesus Christ, in this passage. So this, that's the question I want you to just kind of ponder this morning as we look at this text and just ask yourself, or you do a self-evaluation here, how do I become more useful to the master? What would it take in your life? What would it take in your routine? What would it take in your heart to become more useful to the master in the days ahead. So with that in mind, let's look at verse 20 
2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20 is where we're starting. It says, Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So the first thing we're going to do here, if we're going to be useful to the master, we have to be a vessel for honorable use. So Paul lays out this analogy here of different types of vessels or containers, is really what that word means, like containers in a house. And how some are for honorable use and some are for dishonorable. And he gives some examples like, you know, you might have some gold or silver dishes that you would use when you had company over. Like when you had people coming over and you put the nice food out on the, the, the pretty dishes, right, and you use that. And, and that was for the, the honorable special use. And then, um, you know, you might um, have, let's hold on to that for just a second there, Gene. And then you might have um, some other dishes back then that wouldn't necessarily be like gold or silver. They would be like made of wood or clay, which kind of seems weird to us today, but that was kind of the way they functioned. And those would be used for less honorable uses, like maybe that would hold the water for washing people's feet, right? Or that's where you would put the trash that you would be collecting to then go and dispose of somewhere. So those would be dishonorable uses. So if we were to take that and kind of parallel it today, um, you know, like when you have somebody come over for your house for like a nice party or maybe a holiday meal or something, and you get, all, you get out the dishes, and, and you have the, 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 the nice, fancy, shiny plate that goes underneath the regular plate that actually holds the food. You know what I'm talking about? Like, okay, a charger. Like, you have to have a plate for the plate. Like, it's not enough to just have one nice plate. You have to have a nice plate to hold the nice plate to hold the food, right? That would be the vessels for honorable use. Um, opposed to, like, if you came over to our house and I pulled out just a trash can lid and laid it on the table uh, for you to eat from. You can go now, Gene. That would be, like, the, the juxtaposition here of the honorable use versus the dishonorable use. That wouldn't go super well, right? Um, Another example I thought about for, like, modern day would be towels. I don't know if you guys have differentiation of towels in your house now, but, like, when we were growing up, we were never, we were always too poor to have the, the nice, fancy towels. But if we went to Grandma's house, she had the fancy towels, right, that were hanging in the bathroom on the thing. And, and you were not allowed to use the fancy towels to dry your hands that you just soaped and cleaned with purified water through the system that clean water off your hands could not touch the fancy towels. You had to use the regular towels, right, because that was what they, was, they were for a different use than the regular. We don't have fancy towels in our house. We don't roll like that. We, we do have guest towels, though. So, like, if we have a guest come over and we're trying to be hospitable and they're going to take a shower or something, we have some towels. That, like, these are kind of the ones we give to them that they're a little bit nicer, right, that they can use those. And it, it gives a good impression of the host. We also have another towel in our house called pea towel. That's what I call it. It's the towel we use to clean up the dog's messes, right, when they don't do what they're supposed to do. So how do you think it would go in our house if when we had a guest come over, I washed, I washed the pee towel in the, the, in the washer, and then I gave that to one of our guests to use for their shower? Thumbs up or thumbs down? How's that going to go? Right? Yeah. Because those are for dishonorable use. Right? Like that's not, you see the differentiation that Paul's making here, Right? Like the honorable use thing, that's what you pull out when you want to make a good impression, when you want to, to, to speak well of the host. The dishonorable use stuff, that's like the stuff you, you hide those mugs when people come over, right? Because you don't want anybody seeing that that's in your house. Paul here is saying that as Christians, we're represented by these vessels, and we want to be vessels of honorable use. 
that can be on public display that will bring glory to God rather than shame to God. That, That are going to magnify Christ. That are going to give a picture of the greatness of who our God is. And so he's going to challenge him. He's going to challenge us to be these vessels of honorable use. Now, again, just to clarify, if you're maybe new to this series, um, this whole letter here, 2 Timothy, is written to Timothy, who was a pastor, right, who was a spiritual leader in the church. So there are parts of it that are kind of specific to that role of pastor or spiritual leader that might not apply just to everyone as Christians. But the majority of it applies to all of us because these are all traits and characteristics that we can all walk in as disciple makers and as leaders of someone in our lives. And so we'll kind of differentiate that as we walk through here, how to be a vessel of honorable use, okay? So we're going to give you three things here that Paul points out for this process. So go ahead and look at verse 21 again. It says, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with all those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Uh, Verse 23, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. Okay, so point number two is this. Be cleansed from dishonorable sin. If we're going to be vessels of honorable use, first thing we have to do is be cleansed from dishonorable sin sin. We have to be cleaned up. And he says here, if anyone cleanses himself. Now this is very key because he's referring here again to the vessels that are in the house, right? So if the vessels are already in the house, they already belong to who? The master. I need y'all to wake up a little bit this morning. Okay, come on. They belong to the master, right? They're already part of the household. And so when he's saying that they need to cleanse themselves, he's talking here to Christians, right? You're already in the household of God. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are part of the household. But just because you're in the household doesn't mean that you're clean and ready for honorable use. So he says, if anyone cleanses himself, so this is pointing to what the the theological term we would put on this is sanctification, right? This is the process of us as Christians as we're following Christ. Hopefully, day by day, we're walking closer and closer to Jesus. We're becoming more and more Christ-like in our lives by ridding ourselves of sin and following the example of Jesus. But in doing that, part of that work is done by God through the Holy Spirit in us, but part of that is done by us fulfilling our role in the process. Philippians chapter 2, Paul says it like this. It says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more my absence, here it is, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. There's a part of it that God does when he changes our hearts, when the Holy Spirit starts to, to change our desires and our minds. But there's a part of it that we have to then submit to that and to follow that and to walk, as we've been talking all year, right, about walking with Christ. We have to walk in that process of sanctification in order to be cleansed from sin. So in verse 22, he gets a little more specific. He says, so because you need to be cleansed, so flee youthful passions. Now, he doesn't really define youthful passions here. He doesn't get get into the specifics. But as we kind of look at the words and, and kind of walk through this, I think we all kind of remember, right? Some of us, maybe it's longer ago than other, but we, we all remember what our hearts were like when we were youths, youths, whatever you want to call them, right? Like when we were the young people, 
and our hearts had these passions in them um, that made us think certain things and do certain things and make decisions that we wish we could take back, right? Like, there's youth, there's part of our youth that's just naturally self-indulgent, right? Always wanting to just gratify myself, whether that be through sex or substances or experiences or whatever. Like, I'm always looking for something to just, uh, that self-indulgent, self-gratification. That's part of growing up in youth. Also, youth, youthful passions tend to focus on selfish ambition, where it's, it's about selfishness. It's about greed. It's about getting more for myself, whether that be more money or more power or more position or more recognition or whatever. Like, I'm wanting to just experience more and more and more. There's something that's kind of, that's just embedded in us as humans as we're growing up in youth. And then there's, the third thing I thought about was there's always this hint, at least, of, sometimes it's more than a hint, depending on your personality, of self-assertion, right? That pride that I'm right, you're wrong, and I'm going to prove it. And so we argue, and we quarrel, and we go back. Like, there's just, these things are kind of embedded into youth. And so when he says here, flee youthful passions, that could be um, physical youth, right? Like when you were physically young and you were in these things, flee from that. It could be spiritual youth, right? So maybe you're 40 years old, but you're a brand new Christian, and you're still struggling with some of these sin issues in your life that you need to flee from. Either way, it could be both. Regardless, I think his point is here, youthful passions, that, that, that young time in our hearts and in our lives seems to be like ground zero for sin, right? Like, that's when we're, we're dealing with the most basic base sins that just kind of flood humanity, and we're trying to figure out how to live beyond those youthful passions and desires that want to spring up in our lives. And so he says here, flee them. That word flee literally means to escape. Like escape physical danger. Like run and seek safety from attack. And Paul here, he's not applying it to physical danger, though. He's applying it to spiritual danger. I I don't want you to miss this. This is so important because I think in our culture today, even in the church, so many times we water this down right here and it ends up hurting our process of sanctification. You need to know this morning, friends, sin is a problem, right? And it's not just a problem because God said don't, right? Sometimes I think we get this mentality of, well, it's sin because, you know, the Bible says don't do it, and that's why it's wrong. No, 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 no. Sin is a problem because it hurts you. The reason God said don't do these things is because it physically or spiritually hurts you. It hurts your soul, and God knows that. And he doesn't want that for you. I, I, I kind of use the analogy of like when if you're a parent and you're raising kids, especially little kids, and you're trying to teach them, right? You're like, hey, don't touch the hot stove, right? I'm not telling my kid not to touch the hot stove just because I want to be like, I'm in charge and you got to listen to me and I'm going to shove my weight around and that's right. And I'm not doing it to show off or just to put my thumb on them. I'm telling them don't do it because you're going to get hurt, And I don't want that for them. And God is our heavenly Father who loves us and doesn't want to see us hurt, not just physically, but spiritually. 
at the soul level, at the level that can affect your eternity. We need to get a better picture of sin and of God's word in relation to sin. You have to come to this place where you understand when God says don't, he means don't hurt yourself. Don't think about prohibitions in the Bible as things where God's just trying to take away your fun or control your life. God's trying to be a loving father to you and to teach you sin is a problem and it hurts, so don't do it. When it comes to sin, don't just get used to it. Don't just get comfortable in your sin. When it comes to sin, don't don't negotiate with it. Don't try to, to justify it. Well, yeah, but this and that and... Don't linger near its presence. Paul says, flee from it. And then he goes on to talk a little bit more in specifics, and he says, and have nothing to do with foolish or ignorant controversies. And we touched upon this a little bit, I think, last week. But here... Again, he's not saying that you, you should never engage in conflict or controversy or like, you should never have you know, a discussion about something. He's not saying that because, obviously, again, he's talking to pastors here. He's talking to Timothy. And sometimes, Timothy and pastors, sometimes you have to address controversy. Sometimes you have to address conflict. Right? You would be a bad pastor if you never did that because you're not protecting the flock. You're not shepherding those that God has given you if you just let things continue to fester or continue to grow undealt with. So he's not telling Timothy, don't ever engage in controversy or don't ever engage in, um, in conflict. But he's saying you need to have wisdom as to when to engage and when not to engage. Right? Don't, he says, don't have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. Literally, frivolous, stupid arguments that produce nothing. Proverbs talks a whole lot. If you ever read the book of Proverbs, it talks a whole lot about foolish men and how they engage in conflict and controversy. A couple verses, Proverbs 15.8 says, A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Proverbs 20, verse 3 says, It is an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife, but every fool will be quarreling. We need to pick wisely what we're going to engage in and have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. And here's the reason why. Most of the time, those type of controversies are not about God. They're not about truth. They're not about anything that's going to help the kingdom of Christ. They're about pride and ego, and puffing myself up so that I can win and you can lose. Those are foolish, ignorant controversies, and they're full of sin. Because they don't bring any glory to God. And when we engage in those, we're becoming a dishonorable vessel. Because we're bringing shame on the name of Christ rather than honor and glory to God. And so Paul says, have nothing to do with that. Because, he says, it breeds quarrels. Quarrels here are arguments that flow from a proud spirit and a prideful heart. 
quarrels that lack humility and love and wisdom. It's more about the heart in which we're approaching it than it even is what it is about. You know, our culture loves a good controversy. I don't know if you've noticed, but like if, if we didn't uh, quarrel over controversy, pretty much all of the news shows would shut down. Because that's 99% of what we get, right? We have whole websites. We have whole TV shows dedicated to going out and finding some controversy and some dirt on somebody that they can then broadcast to the world so everyone can give their judgment and their opinion and jump in on the latest controversy quarrel. Maybe this is most evident on the internet, specifically social media. And so as Christians, we need to be wise about how we engage about this. Think about this for a second. Think about your experiences with social media or Facebook. How many times... How many times have you seen an actual helpful, fruitful, productive argument play out in the comments of Facebook? <laughs> Basically zero, right? Like, like you, may, you may have found the, 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 the one outlier a couple times, but pretty much most of those, if not all of those arguments, are frivolous, foolish controversies. They're ignorant, they're prideful, they're self-serving quarrels, and the followers of Christ should not be involved in them. I was thinking about this this week, and I was like, how did Jesus handle controversy? And God brought to my mind the, the story of the woman caught in adultery. If, if you have a church background, you probably know the story. If you don't, I'll, I'll synopsis it real quick for you. But basically, these religious people found this one woman who was committing the sin of adultery, how they found her, whatever happened, I don't know. But they find out she was innocent, so they drag her in front of Jesus, and they start just, like, just berating her and just plaguing Jesus with these questions of, like, what should we do? How should she be punished? What should her punishment be because of this sin in her life? They were trying to, to draw Jesus into this controversy, into this quarrel about what does it mean to discipline? What's it mean to follow the law when it comes to adultery? But Jesus, he wouldn't take the bait. Instead, he very humbly reminded everyone else of their sin. And then as they all started to walk away, he extended grace to the woman. He didn't feel the need to engage in their prideful, sinful quarrel over the law because it wasn't anything to do with grace or love or the glory of God. Paul talks about that as followers of Christ, we're supposed to be filled with the fruit of the Spirit. Right? If we have the Holy Spirit, it's supposed to be producing in us these qualities. And I just want to just listen to this list one more time. Many of you have heard it. I'm sure plenty of times, maybe with fresh ears this morning, just listen to the characteristics that are supposed to, to describe the follower of Jesus Christ. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I don't see how any of that is compatible with prideful, sinful arguments 
or desires in ourselves. This is what he's talking about when he says, cleanse yourself. It's to turn away from the things of this world, turn away from the sin, turn away from the arguments, turn away from the controversy, and walk towards Jesus. If you and I want to be useful to the master, useful to the master means regularly cleansing my heart from sin. Even as a Christian, even as a follower of Jesus, I have to, on the regular, maybe on a daily basis, be working on cleansing my heart from the sin that wants to creep back in and take control of my life again. So if we're going to be vessels of honorable use, the first thing is to cleanse ourselves from dishonorable sin. That's part number one. Part number two, look at verse 22. It says, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Then go down to verse 24 where he explains more. It says, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently enduring evil and correcting his opponents with gentleness. Second thing we need to do, the third point today, is be set apart as holy. It says, first of all, cleanse yourself from dishonorable sin, but then second, be set apart as holy. That's back in verse 21. Set apart there means to be literally set apart, to be put away over here, away from the things of this world to be set aside for use by the master, to be set apart by God for his purposes, for his mission, for his his goals in this life and in this world, not our own, just like Jesus was. He gave all of himself to be set apart for use by the master. So Paul says, be set apart, and he tells us how. He says, be set apart by doing this, pursue righteousness, faith, Love and peace. I like that he starts with that word pursue there because that word is literally the complete opposite of the last word he used to flee, right? Flee from sin, but pursue these things. It actually means to to run after or to chase or to like hunt down until you find it. It's the same word that Paul used to describe himself when he said that he, before, before he got saved, before his conversion, that he was pursuing Christians to put them in jail and to kill them and to persecute them. He says, with that type of relentless pursuit, run after righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Man, what, what a great description of who Jesus was. Like, he lived that. He walked that day by day. He's telling us, like, listen, pursue Christ-likeness. Our job as Christians is to be like Christ. And we're not just told that here in 2 Timothy. We're told that all throughout the New Testament. Over and over again. 1 Timothy 6.11. 1 Corinthians 14.1. Romans 12.13. Romans 14.19. 1 Thessalonians 5.15, Hebrews 12.14, 1 Peter 3.11. I could probably come up with more, but I just was like, that's a good enough list. Over and over again in the scriptures, he tells us to pursue these type of characteristics, to pursue 
what it looks like to be like Jesus Christ. This, my friends, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is it right here. This is the exchange of the Christian life. Flee from sin and pursue Jesus instead. That's what we're called to. Everything else flows out of that. Right? If we do that, we will bring God glory. If we do that, we will reach the people with the gospel of Jesus Christ because they're going to see it and they're going to hear it in our life and in our words. We're going to see people discipled. We're going to see our families nurtured in the gospel. All that's going to flow from us following Jesus, fleeing sin, and pursuing him with everything that we have. It starts with us, our hearts. I was thinking about this whole idea of pursuing a goal or pursuing something. And, and back in school, um, I, I, I had this just longing desire, this goal to play varsity basketball. Like, that's, that was my biggest goal leading into high school. Like, I wanted to play. I've been helping Ava, our youngest, start to play basketball again. She's kind of, like, reminding me of, like, how much I love that. And I, I, I would work, and I would run. Like, even in the offseason, I would run. And some of y'all know how much I hate running, right? Like, but I would work out, and I would run. And I would, I, on my junior year, I got up early in the mornings. On, at the beginning of the school year, I was going, and I was training and lifting and doing everything I could to make that team, to be in there, to reach that goal. So I'd be ready for tryouts. I was giving maximum effort, sacrificing my time, sacrificing my sleep, sacrificing my body. Um, my mindset was all about reaching this goal. I was pursuing it at all costs. And I'm sure some of you have had that experience with something. It might have been a sport. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was a sport. Maybe for you it was like an academic scholarship, right, because you needed that and you wanted to be the first person in your family to go to college and we had to get this scolarship and so I'm working hard for that. Or maybe it was just like, just, I just wanted to finish college, Micah. Like, I just wanted to like, just actually pass and get the degree. And like, you, were, you were working hard. You were pursuing that goal. Or maybe it was that coveted audition spot on that performance team that you really wanted to be a part of. Maybe it's getting that raise at work or getting that promotion that you've been working hard for years. Whatever it was for you, think about that top goal, that thing that you most pursued in your life that you worked so hard to achieve. And then Paul says, pursue Jesus like that. Pursue righteousness and faith and love like that. Because, guys, there is no greater goal in our lives than to be like Jesus Christ. But I also am comforted by the fact that he says, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with others, okay? You don't do this alone. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. God did not design it that way. We are meant for relationships. We are meant for community. We are meant for a a, a people gathered around us, other believers who can challenge us and encourage us and hold us accountable to those things. We need help in the pursuit because we're going to get tired. We're going to get weary. We're not going to always have it in us to keep going on our own, and we need other brothers and sisters around us to help us along as we are pursuing Jesus Christ. And this is one of the greatest values of our small groups here at Harvest, that you have other people locking arms with you, helping you pursue Jesus, helping you to become more useful to the Master day after day, week after week. Sundays are great. Small groups are better. Like, you need that. You need that. 
He says, pursue these things along with others. And then he talked about what it looks like to be the Lord's servant. Now, just to be fair, all Christians are servants of God. But here he's using the word Lord's servant as kind of a special term to describe Timothy's role as a pastor, as a spiritual leader, right? So he's kind of talking more specifically to that kind of special role there. But just as we talked about a few weeks ago, you might not be a pastor, you might not be a small group leader, but all of us who are following Jesus, we can all be, we all should be a spiritual leader to someone, right? To your spouse, to your kids, to your friend, to your neighbor. Like there's somebody in your life who knows less about Jesus than you do, and you can be a spiritual leader to them. And so although some of this might be more specific to Timothy as a pastor, it really still applies to all of us in some way as we're leading and discipling others in the grace of God. So he describes them in four things. He says, first of all, a servant of the Lord is not quarrelsome. So we're going back to the whole quarreling thing. He's really hitting this quarreling thing. Are you getting that? Like this is a big deal to Paul. He says, not quarrelsome, but kind. That word kind there is describing like God's kindness to us how he's merciful and caring. But he doesn't just stop there. He says, not quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Like, really, Paul? Like, you had to go there? Like, I was okay with the kind comment, but now we're like, kind to everyone? Right? Even my enemies, even those who oppose me, even the false teachers that Timothy was having to deal with, and he was, they were trying to steal the church and all this junk. Like, be kind to them? God says, yeah, because I'm kind to you. When you mess up, when you come against me, when you disobey, when you don't, like, he says, not quarrelsome, but kind. You know, back in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is teaching on what it looks like to be a follower of, of God, and he says, just, just says, blessed are the peacemakers. And what a great term for those who are kind rather than quarrelsome. He said, you want to be blessed? Be a peacemaker. In Titus 3, 2, Paul says that all believers should be peaceable. And here's what I've found as I've studied more and more. If you do a study of the New Testament, not one New Testament leader, not one is characterized as belligerent or hard-nosed or picking fights or leading by bravado and trying to throw their weight around to get stuff done or intimidating people. None of that. There's no room for spiritual leaders like that in God's church. Not then, not now. If they're picking fights, if they're stirring up controversies, if they're constantly trying to show how big they are by pushing other people around, whether it be in the church or outside of the church, that is not the kind of spiritual leader that God calls for. It says, not quarrelsome, but kind, able to teach. Now, again, that's a little bit more specific to Timothy as a pastor, right? Like he had a gift of teaching. But again, we can all be teaching someone. There's somebody who knows less about the Bible than you do. Many of our students, our youth, serve every month back in our kids' ministry and help teach the ones who are younger than them about Jesus. And what an example for the rest of us, right, that we can be doing something to teach others 
It says, not quarrelsome, but kind, able to teach, and then patiently enduring evil, which literally means long-suffering. Okay? Long. Think about Paul's life. If you've read his letters, it was just like event after event after event after event of suffering for the gospel. He says, be patient in enduring evil with a heart of forgiveness for the sake of the gospel. If you're going to be used by God for ministry, you're going to take some hits. Like, let me just like, take the bloom off the rose here for you. Like, just listen, if you're going to be discipling other people, if you're going to be pouring into people, if you're going to be working and serving for the glory of God, there are going to be some times where you take some hits. You're going to have to endure some pain. You're going to have to endure some hardship. You're going to have to endure some evil when people lose their minds and sin against you. Because they will. Because they're human. That's why they need us. That's why they need love. That's why they need the gospel. And you have to be able to weather those attacks and continue following Jesus and loving others in the midst of it. One of my mentors in pastoral ministry early on told me this phrase that has stuck with me all these years. He says, if you're going to be in ministry, if you're going to follow God, if you're going to serve the Lord, you have to have a tough skin and a soft heart. You have to be willing to take the hits and still turn around and love and forgive in return. He says, patiently enduring evil, and then lastly, correcting opponents. You're like, yes, finally. Finally, we get to tell them what's up, right? Like, we get to finally, like, you're wrong, and this is it. And then he says, with gentleness. Not with wrath, not with anger, not with vengeance, not with sarcasm or smugness, not with an I told you so attitude. Correct them with gentleness, with grace and love, just the way God corrects us when we sin. Right? He corrects. He disciplines. He doesn't let us stay in our sin, but he does it with grace and love and gentleness. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, Jesus describes himself as one who is gentle and humble in heart. That's the kind of leader, that's the kind of Christian, that's the kind of follower that God wants us to be. If we're going to be set apart for the Lord, it means following Jesus and being gentle and humble leaders with those that God entrusts to us. So if we're going to be useful to the master, it means serving set apart like Jesus. Set apart like Jesus. So cleanse from dishonorable sins, set apart for God and for his use. And then lastly, one more thing. Look at verse 21 again. It says, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house. Here it is, ready for every good work. And then he, again, jump down to the bottom. He describes that here in verse 25. 
correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Last point today, be ready for every good work. And let me just tell you, when he says every good work, he means every gospel work. That's what Paul considered to be good work, right? Like all the other work was secondary. The primary work, the best work, the most important work, the good work was the work of the gospel. Living it out and speaking it to others. That's why he says here, correct them with gentleness so God may grant them repentance. We correct with gentleness so that God can achieve his purposes in their lives. Not so we can be right or so we can prove ourselves or so we can... No, we're doing this for him. We're serving him. And he says that God may grant them repentance. I think that's such an important word that we miss so oftentimes in the church. We get repentance confused with confession. Okay? Confession is admitting my sin. It's agreeing with God that, yes, I did that. That's confession. And it's important. We need confession. We need to confess our sins. But if we stop there, we've missed what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Confession should lead to repentance. Repentance is not just saying I sinned, but it's admitting my sin and then turning away from that sin and following after Jesus instead. Leaving that sin in the rear view so I can follow and pursue after Christ. And he says here that repentance is granted by God. It starts with him. Repentance starts by God doing a work in your heart to send the Holy Spirit and to convict you of your sin so that you see it and you feel it and then you are willing to turn from it and trust in Jesus Christ. It starts with God, but we still have a part to do. Jesus' whole message when he was on the earth and he was preaching was over and over again, repent for the kingdom of God is near. Repent for the kingdom of God is near because there's some part of repentance that we have to do. God starts it in our hearts and then we have to respond to that by turning away from our sin and following Jesus making that choice, making that step, walking that out in our lives. And if we do that, if we'll repent, then we can be a vessel, an honorable vessel used by God to call others to repentance, to do the good work of the gospel that all might come to know Jesus Christ. And look what he says at last. He says that they may come to their senses and escape the devil. Come to their senses literally means wake up or sober up. Like they are drugged in the intoxication of sin. They can't even think or see straight. And they need somebody to correct them with gentleness so that God can do a work of repentance in their heart. And they can literally wake up from the stupor of sin and start to follow Jesus. That's how serious this is. And friends, Paul's saying this is the most honorable use we can have. You want to be useful? You want to be useful to the master? You want to be useful to his mission and to his glory? Then it all starts with this right here. 
Repent of sin and follow Jesus. Some of you are thinking this morning, like, Micah, that sounds great, and I, 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 I'm, I'm all for that, but it also sounds impossible. Like, I've tried that. I've tried the stop sinning thing. It doesn't always go so well because I sin again, and I struggle, and I can never do what you're asking me to do. And you know what? It's okay. You don't have to do it. You don't have to do it alone. This is where Jesus comes in. That's the whole purpose of the gospel because God knew that none of us can do it alone. All of us are born with sinful hearts and sinful minds and we are stuck in this pattern of sin that rebels against God and goes our own way and we can't fix it. And God knew that and so in his grace and his mercy he sent his son Jesus Christ to come and to be perfect for us to walk a perfect and sinless life, the one that you and I could never do. And then to go to the cross and sacrifice that life. To give it as a payment to cover the sin that you and I have committed, the debt that we owed, the death that we deserved. Christ took it upon himself. And he stood in our place as a substitute. And he died and he was buried. And three days later, he rose back to life prove that he was God, that he had conquered sin, he had conquered death, and to offer us an opportunity to be saved from the sin that entangles us and intoxicates us and keeps us stuck. He says, if you'll believe in me and turn from your sin, repent of your sin and follow me, you will be saved and I will give you a new heart and a new life and you can be a useful vessel to God. That's the gospel. That's what God's speaking to you today. He says right here at the bottom, correct them in gentleness that they may come. Anyone here today who is feeling the call of God on your heart right now, who he's calling you out of your old life, he's calling you out of your sin, he's calling you to something better, and you feel that tension, you feel that struggle, you feel that like anxiousness right now, and you're like, I, I don't know what to do with this, and I'm scared, and I don't. I d-. All he's saying in that feeling is come. You don't have to fix yourself, you don't have to clean yourself up, just come and repent of sin and God will make you a vessel useful to the master. But you have to come. You have to come to Jesus. And some of you here, you're, you're already believers, you're already followers of Christ. But earlier, Paul also said, if anyone will cleanse himself or herself. Some of you came in this morning and you were already feeling down and you were already feeling ashamed because of what you did this past week. Because of what you said, because of what you did, because of what happened with that person at work or that relationship at home. And you were feeling the weight of your sin. And God's saying, I know. I know you need to be cleansed. But the answer for your cleansing is the same answer it's always been. Come and repent of your sin and God will cleanse you. And you'll be useful to the master again. Don't stay stuck in that. Don't stay with all that junk on you and on your heart. Come, repent, and be cleansed. 
this is it. This is where it all starts. So we're going to do that this morning. Ask you at the beginning. Ask you to ask yourself this question. How do I become more useful to the master? The answer is come and repent. And so I'm going to pray here in just a moment. The worship team is going to lead us in a song. But I don't want you to sing. I want you to pray. And I want some of you who God's speaking to you right now, the Holy Spirit is on you right now to get out of your seats. I know these are long aisles. Just ask the person nicely. They'll move out of the way. They'll let you out. Don't get rid of the excuses. And I want you to come down here. We're going to make this stage an altar this morning before the Lord. I want you to come. I want you to kneel. I want you to pray and repent of whatever it is that's keeping you from being more useful to the master. Let's cleanse ourselves today so that God can do a new thing, a fresh thing. Man, we want that. Stay with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, God. We thank you, God, that you give us this promise. Lord, you give us this word that if we will just come, Lord, that you will cleanse us. If we just come and repent, Lord, you will give us new hearts and new lives. Lord, there is a way forward. We are not stuck in this. Lord, I pray for those here today who have not put their faith in Jesus, Lord, that today would be their day. Lord, touch their heart right now. Have them come forward. Have them pray and trust in Jesus today. Change them, God. And for those of us who are already followers of Christ, Lord, God, do a new thing in our hearts right now. Convict us of that sin that is keeping us from being more useful to you. Show us our sin, God, that we might come and repent right here, right now. We pray all of this by the mercy and the grace and the great name of Jesus Christ.